You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 10th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Global tensions rise ahead of the Taiwan election. South Africa and Israel face each other at the International Court of Justice. I'm Georgina Godwin. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guests Carol Walker and Bill Hayton will discuss the day's big stories, including whether politicians should be immune from prosecution and the best way to recruit members of a rock band. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily and I'm Georgina Godwin. I'm joined today by Carol Walker, political commentator and Times radio presenter, and by Bill Hayton, Associate Fellow for the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House. Welcome to both of you. you. Good evening. The most important question, I think, and it's one I've been asking absolutely everybody, is about this whole tradition of Twelfth Night, because I believe very, very strongly that, I think it's the 6th of January is Twelfth Night, your Christmas decorations have to be down by then. And I've been walking around London and very disapprovingly looking at people who've still got them up. Carol, have you complied? Mine were out before New Year's Eve. That's <laughs> disgraceful. I'm sorry. I got. We had a slightly um, dashing around Christmas and we had a few Christmas decorations here and then put some up somewhere else and then I got back and I thought, this just looks a mess and we just cleared them all out um, before the New Year. I suppose it depends how you're expecting your New Year's Eve party to be, maybe. <laughs> so, so, Bill, did you get oh, no, I'm definitely a 12th-nighter. You know, oh, they're, good, they're up good, till good, then. Good. And, um, but then they, yeah, well, I think the biggest problem around where I live is people... You know, you know, being like Carol, taking them down too early. You know, I think at this time of year, you need lights and cheerfulness. In the- well, there's always a New Year's Eve party, isn't there? Did you make resolutions? Uh, not explicitly, but I suppose I can think of things I should do more of. <laughs> actually, I was actually wondering, because I guess a lot of people sort of join gyms in January, don't they, and have the New Year's resolution to get fitter. But since I've had a gym membership for years that I've never used, maybe my resolution would be to actually cancel my yeah, direct I actually did do that. <laughs> <laughs> Carol, what about you? Well, I should probably do the same because I've actually just become a complete um, addict to exercising outside, which I do all the time. And now I can't bear going back to the gym. But my resolution this year was not to bother with the resolution that I've had for about the last three years and failed to keep, which was to go to the cinema to see all these big films. And um, every year I set myself up to fail because I never seemed to manage to get round to doing it. So I decided I wouldn't bother with that. And then I, I'll just enjoy watching the films when I see them, which is usually weeks after everybody else, um, possibly on a plane somewhere, and just enjoy the films when I do see them instead of worrying about the fact that I haven't seen this one film that everyone's talking about this week. Well, I think that's very healthy, actually. I mean, in terms of exercise, mine has just been to tape my dog out more. So consequently, I have actually brought her with me to the studio today. Now she's safely the behind dog. the glass. The dog. <laughs> Bonus. Bonus. Bring the dog maybe, maybe we'll let her in a bit later. Now, China's resolution remains unchanged 
changed. It wants Taiwan back. The self-ruled territory, Taiwan, goes to the polls on Saturday in an election which could have enormous consequences. Beijing claims the island as its own and while it promotes peaceful reunification, it's also not ruled out the use of force. At the Defence Policy Coordination Talks in Washington this week, Chinese officials urged the US to stop arming Taiwan and oppose its independence. Whilst Pentagon officials said Washington was committed to its one-China policy, which requires the US government to sell arms to Taipei for the island's self-defence. Well, Bill, I know that this is an area that is very much within your purview. Could you outline the choices facing Taiwanese voters? Well, you've got presidential elections and legislative elections uh, taking place. Um, and the there are three main runners for the presidency. So you have the, 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 D, the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, who basically in their heart of hearts, they favour independence for Taiwan. You have the Kuomintang, the the Nationalist Party, who are the descendants of the people who once ruled the entire Republic of China back in the first part of the 20th century. Um, And and their their political background is that they they believe in in one China. And then you have this new party, the Taiwan Political um, Party, um, who are sort of a, a new kid on the block. They've got money, but they haven't really got a track record. But the kind of weird thing about Taiwan politics is that um, everybody basically wants the same thing when it comes to the Taiwan-China relationship, but they can't agree how they say it. So everybody wants the status quo. You know, n- nobody wants a war. Um, everybody recognises that a, a, a rash move towards independence you know, could precipitate a war. Um, but almost nobody on Taiwan wants to be ruled by the People's Republic of China, by China. So they kind of just, they argue about different ways of saying, um, let's be nice to the Chinese, but let's keep our distance. You know, that, that's kind of what it's about. Meanwhile, Taiwan has all these problems has slowing economic growth. It sort of was a technical recession last year. You know, they had power cuts, they had egg shortages, all kinds of things. And very few people are actually talking about those issues because partly I think they, because they think they'll be held to account and they mm. won't actually fix the problems. Well, that's exactly my question to you, Carol. I mean, I wonder if the China question is front and foremost in voters' minds, or are they, like most of us, let's be honest, primarily concerned about the economy and their own day-to-day lives? I think that's the overriding feeling of most voters. But clearly what they're concerned about is that this entire election is being seen through the prism of the relationship with China. And the simple fact that they're having a democratic election, in a sense, is bound to raise those tensions with China. And Bill has explained that complex relationship um, between Taiwan and China. I I think what's fascinating is that you've got those competing parties. Uh, You've got uh, a Taiwanese people who don't want to be part of China. China is committed to that one China. China policy. You've got the United States uh, committed to providing, if necessary, military support to Taiwan. But it seems as though none of them actually want to escalate this into any kind of conflict. So we have to just hope that that overriding mood and the option of diplomacy means that whatever happens in these very important elections at the weekend, that that sense of trying to sort things out through through jaw-jaw 
rather than war war is what mm. happens. I mean, Bill, I wonder how likely it is that China would attempt to take the island by force. As Carol says, people are quite reluctant, but we also, we have seen the ratcheting up of aggression. But we also know that Beijing has a new Minister of Defence. There are at least nine generals who've been fired. Is China even capable of a big military operation? Uh, at the moment, I think it, it, most people feel that, that China wouldn't risk something. It, the, the, the chances of failure are too high and the consequences of failure would be you know, devastating for the political leadership in, in China. Um, but that's not to say that they couldn't do something short of an all-out war. You know, last year, um, following the visit of Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, they imposed what was in effect a blockade around you know, Taiwan's key ports um, and served notice really that they could potentially do that uh, again. Um, but I think that, you know, that there's a sort of the China that usually it generates, you know, adverse reactions when it does this. So I think it's sort of it, it, the Chinese leadership does learn, I think. And I think they're kind of recognizing that some of this sort of overt um, saber rattling um, you know, is counterproductive. Mm. I mean, if it is the next global spark point of Russia is an obvious ally, although it's probably too stretched at the moment. But China's also really influential in the global south. And I wonder if Beijing could expect support from African nations, particularly South Africa. Well, I think the further you go away from China, the more support there is for China. <laughs> um, so, you know, Taiwan obviously you know, knows China intimately and is very wary. Countries in Southeast Asia are concerned about being sort of caught up in a US-China struggle. But the further you go away, you know, take an African country, when the Chinese ambassador turns up and says, will you um, agree to our one China policy in our diplomatic statement you know most of them go sure fine without really understanding the complexities and so you have loads in you know, dozens of countries around the world who are on paper signed up to china's view of things that taiwan is, is an errant province and should one day be unified so there will be no guarantee for example at the un general assembly that on a sort of straight up and down vote you know there will be anything like you know a, a sufficient support for, for taiwan in, in, a, in a conflict like that yeah, absolutely and i mean south africa traditionally does support the under dog. Uh, and actually, it was once a huge ally of Israel, but now it's a supporter of Palestine. So the country's brought a case to the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide in the Gaza war and seeking an emergency suspension of its military campaign. Uh, the ICJ is holding hearings on the matter this week. Carol, I wondered if you could chart how Pretoria's relationship with South Africa has changed over the years. Well, I think what is fascinating... Uh, sorry, with Israel, Pretoria's relationship with Israel. Yeah, I think um, what is fascinating is that this really goes back to uh, the days of Nelson Mandela. And he forged a strong alliance with the Palestinian cause. I think he felt uh, in the apartheid days when the ANC was fighting for liberation, for equal rights um, for the black population of South Africa, that uh, the that he, like the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat, was fighting for the right of self-determination for a people. And it, when Nelson Mandela came out of prison, he literally embraced Yasser Arafat, then leader of uh, the PLO. And in a sense, I think that is what lies at the root of these now um, quite embedded links between the ANC regime and the Palestinians. Um, Israel was a, a strong supporter of, of white South Africa uh, when it was an apartheid country. And I, I think that what you're looking at is that the ANC still feels a strong affinity with the Palestinians, with what is happening to them, has looked at the oppression that they have suffered over the decades. And of course, the appalling 
appalling suffering which so many people are going through in Gaza now. And perhaps that lies at least in part behind this decision to bring this case before the International Criminal Court um, accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. Now, there is a very specific legal definition of that and clearly this case will take some time to actually reach any any conclusions. But just the fact that it has been brought in the International Criminal Court, I think, is embarrassing, is difficult, does add to the pressure on Israel, and I think is a further sign uh, that uh, pa- the Palestinian cause has in some ways, if anything, been strengthened, even if they are perhaps further than ever, mm. from achieving the, the state that they, they've been longing for for so long. I mean, briefly, what's the diplomatic uh, situation at the moment? I think they've both withdrawn their representatives. To the United Nations. Uh, to, to each other's countries. Uh, yeah, as I understand it, there is a freeze in relations between Israel uh, and South Africa while this is going on. Uh, and of course, there's a further complication to this because the the court is essentially part of the United Nations. Um, Israel uh, does not recognise the court. It's made no secret of its frankly, contempt for the way that the UN has approached its war with Gaza. So I think it is interesting that South Africa, uh, that Israel has even bothered to attend this hearing and has made it clear that it is going to contest these charges mm. and point out the violence that's been, that it Israel has faced, as well as, of course, the ongoing war in Gaza. Mm. I mean, Israel, uh, obviously, as you say, with this this relationship with the UN, but Bill, both South Africa and Israel are signatories to the 1948 Genocide Convention. And that's the thing that gives the ICJ the jurisdiction to rule on disputes over the treaty. As we know, it revolves around the occupied Palestinian territories, but Palestine has no official role in the proceedings because they, of course, are not UN members. So would any decision be binding? And even if it is, is there any guarantee that Israel will take heed? Well, I think the short answer is no. As you say, so they're both, South Africa and Israel are members of the International Court of Justice. So, and they're bound under the the obligations of the 1948 Genocide Convention. But, you know, there are these definitions. You, know, you have to demonstrate intent. You have to say things were being done deliberately. And that's as opposed to... It's not a, a convention that says you mustn't do bad things to people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very specific about what it means. Um, but as you say, even if a full um, finding of the ICJ were to go against Israel, well, the ICJ doesn't have an army. It relies on the UN. The UN relies on the Security Council. The Security Council has five countries with vetoes. Mm-hmm. So I think that's it's unlikely. But it is embarrassing. Um, and the ICJ can order interim measures, as it did, for example, when Gambia brought a case against Myanmar for the genocide or the alleged genocide of, of, of uh, Muslim Rohingya people in Myanmar. Um, so and, uh, that's, you know, adds up another layer of pressure. Um, and in that case, for example, five European and, and countries plus Canada have added their names to that uh, Myanmar uh, story. So it's built up bit more diplomatic pressure on Myanmar. So you, the, something similar could happen potentially with this case. Uh, absolutely. I mean, South Africa has its own problems. It too has an important election coming up. The former president, Jacob Zuma, has been interfering by saying that he no longer supports the ruling African National Congress. He'll instead back a new party. 
One's not sure how much credence Zuma will be given after serving a jail sentence. In itself a surprise, given that many of South Africa's allies choose to grant presidential immunity. In December 2020, the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, uh, he signed a bill that gave former Russian presidents and their families lifetime immunity from criminal prosecution, including for acts committed after they leave office. Now, it does seem that this is a ploy that the former US president, Donald Trump, is trying to imitate. His lawyers have been in the appeals court arguing the case to throw out federal criminal charges that he plotted to overturn the 2020 elections. His lawyers say that he should be immune from prosecution as a former head of state. Uh, I don't know who wants to outline this case for us. Um, Well, certainly I've been talking to um, a senior legal figure about this uh, only last night who was saying that, yes, this is the case that Trump's lawyers are bringing, saying that as a former president, he should be immune from prosecution. Um, but the, he's he's up against um, the, the US justice and the, the um, government officials, legal officials, are making it clear that they simply don't accept that all previous holders of high office should be immune from prosecution. Because if you take that to uh, its logical conclusion, you could have a a president um, bumping off their rivals and and getting off scot-free. Now, whatever happens at the appeal court, it will almost certainly go to the Supreme Court. But interestingly enough, even though we know that Donald Trump has packed the Supreme Court with as many figures uh, who are loyal to him as possible, it does seem as though even the Supreme Court might not grant Donald Trump the immunity that he's seeking. Um, of course, that doesn't actually mean that he's going to be convicted of this or any of the other whole string of legal cases that he's facing. But what it would mean if the Supreme Court acts, and it may do so quite swiftly given the election timetable that we've got ahead, if the Supreme Court does throw out this attempt to claim immunity. What it will mean is that the case alleging that Donald Trump acted illegally in trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election uh, and in his role at the January the 6th riot, um, that case will be heard and will start in March, Mm. which could be quite difficult timing um, as Donald Trump hopes that by then he will be looking at the start of March to start um, securing votes in things like Super Tuesday to become the Republican nominee for the next presidential election taking place, of Mm. course, in November. And I mean, it throws up so many questions, the immunity for lawmakers and presidents, their their power to grant pardons, and, and if presidential immunity threatens democracy, or is it perhaps an important element of it? Well, I think you can't have a president who was sort of distracted from, you know, by minor cases during their term of office. That's one thing. But obviously, you know, high crimes and, and misdemeanors. And the idea that, you know, if, if Trump's lawyers are saying that uh, the only person that can, you know, impeach and try a president is the is the Senate, well, you know, then you, you just need 34 members of the Senate to block everything and you can do whatever you like, you know, as you were saying, you know, you can order the assassination of rivals or whatever it is. Um, but I think, you know, for, you know, obviously clearly in the UK, we don't have, you know, 
the same kind of thing. I mean, MPs can be prosecuted for doing things. I mean, they can have they have certain protections when they're in Parliament. They can say things without being sued for libel, for example. Um, but you know, if they go outside the House of Commons and say things, then they would be subject to the, mm. the same kind of law. So it yeah. does seem kind of strange, I guess, from a British perspective. And I mean, also on the theme of immunity in Poland, two politicians have been arrested despite President uh, Andrzej Duda pardoning them back in. 2015. I wonder if this exemplifies the problems with immunity or the removal of it in the transition between governments, because of course that's when it usually happens. I think what lies behind all of these cases is that different countries have such different legal systems. Um, In the UK, for all our difficulties, um, the judiciary is seen as entirely independent, although interestingly enough, Only today we've got the Prime Minister promising to uh, legislate, to overturn the convictions of a whole load of um, post office workers who were wrongly convicted and to do so en masse without going through the proper proper justice system, which some people do have qualms about. But if you look at the United States, um, the entire legal system is political. You, you have political judges. They, they're, they're political. Um, uh, they're appointed in part um, as, as, as politicians. And it is su- you have a Supreme Court where the president of the day um, can decide who sits in the highest court in the land. So um, I think that that lies in part behind all of this. And in a sense, when you've got a justice system that is so political, it's probably more important than ever that no politician can claim immunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned this country where I think there are some politicians who should be behind bars. <laughs> we can't name any names, can we? <laughs> but I wonder if that's because governments attract the wrong kind of people. And are CVs and experience really examined enough? There's a really great book by Ian Dunt, actually, about Westminster, how it works and what happens when it doesn't. Just saying that actually at, at the very beginning level when people are interviewed by their local panel, they're never actually asked if they can legislate. I mean, if you were recruit, which is their job, if you were recruiting the, the CEO of a, a multinational company, you'd want to have a very detailed look at past experience, at their worldview, at their behaviour under pressure. But I wonder if that should apply across the board. So what, for instance, if you are a rock band. So traditionally, new members have been recruited from a pool of musicians who are already known to the band, or perhaps maybe an audition. But the 90s grunge band, Smashing Pumpkins, Carol and Bill, I'm quite sure you're very familiar with their oeuvre, indeed their entire canon tonight, of their tonight. work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they've, um, they've put out a call for a new musician to enter their ranks via an Instagram post, and they've asked for a CV as well as samples of work. Do you think this new way of recruiting band members will work? I mean, isn't it more about how the sound and the personalities gel? I suppose, is this the updated version of the advert in the back of what was then the NME, the New Musical Express, or, you know, one of those other sort of um, you know, music mags of the sort of, you know, before the internet age, you know, when you would sort of, a band would sort of, you know, drummer wanted, you know, must like, and then it would turn out that, in fact, it was the band that they must like, you know, they kind of... Uh, um, and I did wonder then, uh, you know, kind of whether it, you know how you know how do they do that? How, how does that work? Um, you wonder whether now you know, and a band like the Smashing Pumpkins, you know, there must be there must be getting thousands well, and thousands. Tell us about, about the Smashing Pumpkins. 
Well, I mean, you know, not, not my fa- you know favorite band of all time, but I mean, I, you know, I, I did quite enjoy their album, you know, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Um, but the and I, mean, I just want to, because my my daughter's at the moment is applying for for jobs, you know, the usual kind of um, you know post university milk round, um, and so many of these employers are using AI to interview people. And the, the first round of the interviews, they're being interviewed by a camera, which is recording and somehow digesting what they say, and, you know, and do they espouse the company's values, you know, well enough in their, in their sort of two-minute presentation or whatever. Uh, are the Smashing Pumpkins going to do the same thing? They're <laughs> going to say, play us the riff from, you know, 1979, <laughs> and they have to do it, and, they go, and the AI will go, OK, you're through to the next round or something. Uh, I mean, Carol, do you have any favourite bands whose changing of members positively or negatively adapted their sound? Well, I, I just wanted to pick up on the previous point first because um, our daughter is actually a, a musician and I'm not really so surprised that you get this kind of communication, we're looking for this band member uh, on social media. This is how they communicate. Uh, our daughter is part of a, yeah, a community, if you like, of jazz musicians. And very often there will be somebody who will need a bad me- band member for a particular performance, for a particular tour, something like this. And in a way, it doesn't surprise me. And she has actually picked up various bits. So she's not a full-time um, musician because like many Many, they struggle to make a, a living. Um, but many, many people like her, musicians that have great talent, that are uh, that are performing. Um, she's just got her first record out. Just get, oh, get wow. a little... No, tell uh, us what it is. It, What's her name? It, What's the record? It, um, Sophia Grant, uh, Extinction. Uh, <laughs> she's there on Spotify. Look it up. Um, but they, they do communicate and they're are often opportunities to perform in um, for a particular venue, might want a particular sound, you might not have that type of musician in the band that you play in regularly. So I'm not so surprised by this. The CV maybe sounds a little bit formal, but I, I think that this is just the way that the music industry, like so many other businesses these days, uh, operate. Um, as far as specific lineups, um, look, I, I'm just delighted to see all these 90s girl, ga- girl bands reforming because I just think that's an absolutely great thing. Um, take that, we're clearly never the same after Robbie Williams left, but then neither was Robbie Williams. So <laughs> um, I, I, it's, sometimes it's just difficult to replicate one particular idea, one particular goal, and a sound that does somehow emerge sometimes when you get a particular group of musicians together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one one example, I suppose, would be Pete Best and Ringo Starr as drummers in The Beatles, and arguably they got much better with Ringo. Who knows? I, I have to tell you a, a tiny embarrassing story, which was back when I was in drama school. This was the mid-'80s. I think it was 1985. Bucks Fizz were in a coach crash. Do you remember that? They'd just won Eurovision. They were absolutely huge. They had this coach crash, and then one of the members, Jay Aston decided that she couldn't be a member of the band anymore and there was all this kind of scandal about it and then in the stage there was an advert that they wanted girls to go and audition to be the next member of Bucks Fizz I was probably I don't know 18 or something at the time you had to be blonde I wasn't <laughs> that could be adjusted <laughs> yeah. I guess uh, well exactly I thought <laughs> if I get through the first round I'll dye my yeah. hair I went I didn't unsurprisingly yeah. get oh, through the Georgina so close, so close. Georgina so close. Then you've got to slow it down <laughs> <laughs> 
but, but look, look it's not too late. You know, um, obviously there are vacancies arising all the time. Yeah. Just keep a lookout on Instagram and Absolutely. who knows what opportunities might arise. I, I, and I think I'd be perfect, honestly. I mean, joking aside, though, I wonder if this is indicative of, of, a, of a really tough job market in the creative industry. I mean, as you're saying, Carol, your daughter has to do another job. Musicians must now send their CVs to international call-outs on social media because it's not enough just to be a great musician. Have you got millions of followers? Uh, what have you done? What are your politics? I mean, all of that's really important, isn't it? I guess it? this is literally the gig economy, isn't it? You know, <laughs> people getting picked up for here, here and there. I mean, I was looking you know, in preparation for this about bands that have had the most members over time because I was thinking I quite like, I like The Cure and The Cure had a constantly changing lineup. And you know that they've had many members when there's a specific Wikipedia entry, not just for the band, but for members of the band and it details their changing lineups. Um, which led uh, the, the Water Boys. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. That song, "The Whole of the Moon," oh. um, and uh, I think they had 79 different members of the of the Water Boys so far. <laughs> but I guess you're right. I mean, this is you know, I mean, it, in the same way that sort of you know, lots of things are seen as sort of more fluid and impermanent. That bands are less of a permanent thing, and people, you know, maybe you're just getting collectives sort of musicians who mm. will join and, and, and pass like ships in the night. And, and at a time when so many people listen to their music on Spotify or, or other uh, music streaming platforms, it, it's really, really tough for many musicians and even musicians who I know who are literally performing about five nights a week at, 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 with gigs of various sizes and are, are playing with, uh, you know, at festivals through the summer and are playing constantly really, really struggle to survive. I mean, we all know what the cost of living is like if you're trying to be in London where there's obviously a big music scene, but similarly any of the other big um, cities in the UK where or, or other parts of Europe for that matter, the cost of living is incredibly high and it's very, very difficult for even for very talented musicians who are doing quite well to actually earn enough to make a to make a living out of it. Absolutely. And just before we go on to the next week, Sophia Grant Extinction. That's what people have got to look up on Spotify. Absolutely. Listen, if it's important to get a musical group lineup right, it's just as important when it comes to casting reality television series. Welcome to the game. It's a bit extreme, isn't it? Play it nice. Woo. You could end up six feet under. Play it dirty. I'll be looking at you after this. Wow. And you might come out on top. You're a traitor. 22 people play the ultimate game of treachery for a life-changing cash prize. The Traitors. In November 2022, one reality TV series took the UK by storm. The Traitors, originally launched in 2021 in the Netherlands, has, has since seen adaptations in Australia, the US and beyond. The UK version of the psychological game show sees contestants travel to a castle in the Scottish Highlands, the majority of whom are tasked to play the game honestly as faithfuls, whilst three to four traitors work secretly to murder innocent contestants overnight, all whilst evading suspicion. At stake, of course, is a life-changing prize fund. Monocle's Tamsin Howard spoke to Mark Poss, the brains behind the TV format. She began by asking him why he decided to pitch the idea. In 2014, it was, for our country, a radical new idea because you know who the traders are. And we have them all as a successful format here in the Netherlands. And he always says, yeah, it's like maybe the mall, but now you know who the mall is. So why it's interesting. 
And I always thought, I want to see human behavior. Can you trust somebody? What do you do if you can't trust anybody? A professor over here said to me in psychology, said, when people can't, in a group, can't trust anybody, that's what we can't stand as human beings. So I tried to, to tell my broadcasters, uh, my clients, that, that that human behavior I really want to see. And I think everybody wants to see it, but they didn't see what I was, was was pitching at that right at that moment. So in the first three years, they had questions and mostly good questions. So we enhanced the format. We did a lot of tests in the office, but also uh, made a pilot, et cetera, et cetera. We did it ourselves, not together with a broadcaster. And after a few years, the format was, I think, ready to really roll out, et cetera. So the last three years was big convincing enough and when i came for the third fourth or fifth time for a pitch people told to me oh no you're again here with the traders why yeah you can't do that with every format you're pitching in the, in the market but that's what we did and we were so convinced that it was a good uh, format and that you never know creativity is is vulnerable so to speak but we were convinced and we we stayed pitching and I think that zeitgeist part helps us underneath, so to speak. The zeitgeist part of what I always call, can you trust anybody? Can in, in this world of social media, can you trust the news? Uh, now AI is coming, etc. So I think there's there's something, a kind of undercurrent wave uh, with the audience and why they like to watch it. That's what I think. So you had a gut instinct that this this show needed to be broadcast and you were fine-tuning it and obviously yeah. the, the product was absolutely brilliant. It was a present that when I pitched it, they didn't buy it. I didn't know before that it was a present in my professional life because the present is that I had, now maybe six years is a little bit long, but I got from my clients, from my broadcaster who didn't want to buy it, Time. And time has to be a friend of a creative. And mostly time is not a friend of a creative because we have to produce it. We have people in our company who has to work and et cetera, et cetera. And we, we, we need the revenue and that kind of stuff. But you actually came from a background in directing and television. You were the first director of Big Brother in the Netherlands. And more recently, you were one of the directors of Eurovision 2020. Did your experience of working on live entertainment shows inform how you worked as a producer on something like Traitors? No, I don't think so. I think that's <laughs> really completely different. Probably it influenced me, but I don't know how. From this live entertainment genre, which I mostly did as a director, not as a producer or former developer, it, it later in from 2010, I developed more and more documentary series about art, about science. But I didn't like to have this documentary series, you know, about a scientist telling a story uh, just into the camera and that kind of stuff. I wanted to have scientists or artists to go with them on an adventure. And they were in those formats. I saw real scientists talking to each other, have an adventure, try to find something, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought that's what I love more at this time. The Traders was my first show in this genre. I never directed that kind of shows, never made or directed or produced 
a reality show, never. So it was all new to me. And my first show is this, <laughs> was this, this traders. It's a good beginning. It's a really different genre than live entertainment and that kind of stuff. I mean, there's certainly something quite special about the organic feel of unscripted TV, regardless of the amount of production that's going on behind the scenes. Now, The Traitors started off in the Netherlands, broadcasted by RTL. It's been picked up and developed by, I believe, 20 countries? 26, and there are a few coming next, this year, so I think we will hit the 30 countries this year. Wow. And so they're either in production or they've been aired. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Why do you think this format has travelled so well internationally? I think that... Now I'm convinced why it's traveling this successful is that love and trust <laughs> is the, it's a key element of humankind. So that doesn't differ much if you are French or from the USA or from the Netherlands. So that's, that's the main reason that it travels this fast, I think, because it's not cultural to typical Dutch to trust anybody or Everybody wants to trust somebody, always. We are a group of people who wants to trust each other to make things, to do things, etc., etc. So that's the main reason that, to me, that, that it travels this fast. I'm convinced about that. But I wonder whether you've noticed anything in the way that different countries have adapted the format. I know in the UK, all of the contestants are, quote-unquote, normal people. But in the US, we have celebrities featuring. To me, it's not a format change that it's sometimes with celebrities or not. And there are not really many really big format changes in other countries. In the When we were selling it the last few years, this format, in the beginning, I did, let's say, was it really involved in ten, the first 10 countries. And then it was more about how to produce it because in the when people produce reality in the world, at production companies, just an example, but it tells more. When a reporter asks to a contestant a question, and then they give an answer. Mostly, they ask to this contestant, uh, oh, this is a nice answer, but can you maybe put it like this and this and this, or maybe change your answer a little bit and that kind of stuff. That's forbidden with the traders. We leave the contestants how they are, what they want to say, and we don't help them, so to speak, in the game or how to uh, have a better quote or something like that. So we as producers, we as uh, program makers, we as directors, we as we don't interfere with the life of this bubble, so to speak. And that was a part we had to work hard on with my team. And I think that's clear, hopefully. So much of the drama, as the viewer, it seems to stem from purely the interactions between the contestants. It doesn't feel like it's been meddled with in the same way that maybe other unscripted reality TV shows have. Yeah, and maybe that's why, because I was, let's say, in 2004, a little bit naive, and certainly I was new to this genre. And what I, what I saw is, you call it reality, but why isn't this pure reality? Ah, it can't be really pure because you're staging it in a castle and that kind of stuff. That's not real, but it has to become reality for the contestants. So we as, as program makers, we don't have to interfere. And maybe that's new to that as well. Mm. I didn't know, but that was my vision on that. During that development process, you were pitching for six years. You said it changed quite a lot. Could you tell me maybe a couple of the changes you made to the show during that process? 
what came out of going deeper into it, into your research? Uh, you the said... deeper is that that's when we tested it in 2015, 16, 17, there were two components, so to speak, the gameplay. We enhanced the, the gameplay and we had sometimes to change the gameplay a little bit because when we did, let's say, we did it sometimes in a weekend uh, or some sometimes in a day, we, we saw immediately that the contestants, if we have them in a world sometimes it was a studio sometimes it was an office and sometimes it was a house they immediately got impressed or intimidated by the atmosphere the arena which we have created and then those two worlds the psychology of the contestants and the gameplay has to be congruent because it doesn't has to be only a game it has to be a world of trusting nobody sometimes you have too many rules but if you have less rules, the contestants have questions. What should I do now? Or how does it work? But we don't want to have contestants ask us questions. How does it work? Because we're not there. So that's psychological game, not only of the contestants, but how to work with our producers, directors, and the cameramen. That was the most difficult part of the development. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists today, Carol Walker and Bill Hayton. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Naoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol and she had editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. And a big thanks to all four of them for dog-sitting. I'm Georgina Godwin here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for listening. (laughs) 